Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to this week's podcast. Got a bunch of cool stuff to talk about, so I'm just going to jump right in. The project to scan the Nintendo Power Cartridge Service Manual is now complete. And no, this has nothing to do with Nintendo Power Magazine. I believe this is the power cartridge that Japanese users could go into kiosks and have their cartridges um, reflashed with different games. So I guess the best way to picture this is like a legal certified single flash ROM cart that people could have gone into the kiosks and uh, pay a lot less for the games because they didn't have to rebuy the full cartridge and packaging. They were just getting the ROM downloaded onto it. So uh, it's very cool that yet another weird piece of history has been archived. And I think this is both something neat just to have as well as probably a cool insight into um, into how some of the electronics and programming of the Super Nintendo worked. So thanks very much to GC8 Tech for heading up this project, and of course Smoke Monster for staying on top of it. Hyperkin just announced a cube-shaped emulation-based device that plays your Game Boy, Game Boy Color, and Game Boy Advance games and outputs them via both HDMI and composite, which probably means it's the same garbage that's in the rest of their uh, like NES and Super NES um, HDMI-based cartridges. And I wrote an article that expressed my disdain for all of these blogs that just regurgitate a press release without actually educating people on what they're getting. And of course, nobody read the article. Everybody just hated on me on Twitter without reading anything other than the title, which is typical. It's my fault for thinking people would actually read an article before commenting nasty on it. But the whole point that I have to, that I was trying to make in all of this stuff is just you should be told what it is that you're getting. And unfortunately, I mean, it's just life with retro stuff, retro anything, cars, computers, video games. A lot of the people that want to experience it just want a blast of nostalgia and to be done with it. And if you have a box of cartridges in your closet and you want to play a few Game Boy games on your TV, I imagine this would be the perfect device, just like the NES and SNES would probably be the perfect device. Because, yeah, it's going to suck, but if you just want to see a game for 15 minutes and then probably never play it again... Great, awesome, mission accomplished. But nobody says that. All of these blogs and so many of these videos I see are just people pretty much reading a press release and then giving their thoughts on it, which is basically just the press release. So I tried to make that point. Most of the people that uh, that commented really didn't understand the point at all. And, you know, it sucks, too, because I do praise Hyperkin all the time. There's a lot of products out there that we wouldn't be able to cheaply get our hands on if it wasn't for Hyperkin. Things like silly things, Virtual Boy stands, those NES controllers. And I know half of them suck and half of them are awesome. It stinks that their quality control can't decipher what's what. But they're not a bad company. They just really suck at HDMI devices and have a history of things like stealing code and, you know, not listening to feedback, even of their own developers. So it's it's a company that's an easy target because they're so big. But I try to only genuinely pick on the things that are worth picking on, which is all of their HDMI devices. So just being honest on this one. But I wish I think the other thing that annoyed me about this is it started out as an April Fool's joke, which definitely means that they don't know their audience at all. This like, oh, look, it not this a joke? We're all going to laugh at this. And then they realize people actually liked it. 
So then they went, all right, well, if these guys are going to buy it, might as well just slap it together and make it. I mean, it's just the whole thing sat badly with me. And there's a little lever icon on the side that a couple of people pointed out looked like a middle finger. So I added the middle finger emoji because sometimes I feel like being an asshole. But yeah, I don't know. Um, you know, that's the whole story. I don't. I guess don't read the article because I just summed everything up into, you know, to, uh, as quickly as I possibly could. Three minutes, I guess. But it's definitely a great lesson in social media and how people's attention spans won't get past the title or the picture. On a much lighter note, Furtech just posted a very cool video on how he does the decapping process of some of his chips. So I wanted to write an article that explained what it is that was going on, because I feel like most people, most nerds like myself, would enjoy the video even if they had no clue what he was doing. But I thought knowing what's going on might actually add a bit of awesomeness to it. So I started out describing it, and then somehow it turned into a description of what FPGAs and Mr. are. And thanks very much to Smoke Monster, as always, for helping with that and then ended up in my my little love letter to all the mr developers because really it's such an amazing thing that we get to experience and not it's it's one of those everybody wins scenarios uh you know the gamers get to play accurate games and really enjoy them um these things get preserved in hdl so kind of is one another way to make sure these things last forever so i just want to remind once again that if you use the mr and you have the ability to give a dollar a month to the the to the developers that do have support platforms please do and if you're not in a financial position to do it totally cool i understand i've been there myself a few times but take the time to spread the word which is free of course because a lot of these developers put insane amount of hours into these projects because they love it and they'd continue to do so without any money but it's always pretty nice to get some recognition for their stuff so uh, as always thank you so much to everybody on the mr team Uh, i really love the product and it's something that um, it's something that I, I've watched grow and I could see where it's going and I'm even more excited about the next two years and where it's going to go. Kevin Mellet has just released a new single flash 32 megabit virtual boy cart. Uh, before I go any further, I talked to Kevin. This isn't impacting the other projects. The HyperFlash 32 is still on track and looking good. But this is aimed not really for end users and more for developers. And of course, end users could use it. But this is really for a homebrew developer that wants to take their game, uh, slap it on a good car- uh, good high quality cartridge and then use a custom programmer like the one Kevin sells in order to program the games onto them. Um At the moment, it still requires a donor cart, but Kevin's working on complete third-party reproductions of everything, meaning hopefully relatively soon, uh, Virtual Boy Homebrew devs will be able to buy stuff that is 100% new, nothing reused, nothing cannibalized. So, you know, there's a lot of really cool homebrew out there for the Virtual Boy. And while myself personally would love to donate and then use it on a ROM cart, I do realize that there are collectors out there that really appreciate having the single game, the box art, and all that other stuff. And this is exactly for both them and for the developers. So if you're interested in this, please check it out. If you're a Virtual Boy programmer, thank you, because I love the Virtual Boy, you know, for the five games that are worth playing. But still, it's an awesome five games. Um, And, uh, of course, I will keep everybody updated on the HyperFlash 32 project, which is kind of like a ROM cart for the Virtual Boy, but special. If, uh, If you're not up to date on that, just search the website for it, and it should pop right up. You can't miss it. It's the one with the e ink screen. 
Ben Abrish just posted a teardown of both styles of North American Super Nintendo controllers. And for those of you listening audio only, there are generally two styles of SNES controllers. One that says Nintendo on the top, and then one that says Super Nintendo on the top. And there's long been a debate as to, is one better? Are they different? And Ben tore them apart, and uh, his overall conclusion was that if one has been deemed better than the other, it's probably because it was newer. They're both, they both look to be identical, um, and even on the inside, everything looks the same other than some markings, and it's probably just revision differences or something like that, but overall, everything looks to be identical. So I'm not sure if there was a heated debate about which is which, but I'd certainly, by myself, at least been you know curious on which is which, and I personally never found a difference between the two. The only uh, difference I've ever found with Super Nintendo controllers is the concave buttons versus the all-round buttons, which is, um, I believe it's Super Famicom versus Super Nintendo, so Japan versus the rest of the world. And all of the Super Famicom controllers, they had uh, cords that were much, much shorter. Um, I still don't understand how that, or why that was really, but whatever. Uh, very cool write-up. Uh, I'm glad somebody's continuing to look into this stuff, and if you have an original OE Super Nintendo controller that's giving you trouble, try cleaning it thoroughly. I have the cleaning guide from years ago that's still how I clean everything. And then maybe just add new pads on the inside, which you can get controller. They call them like controller repair kits, which is basically the new pads on the inside. And that should do it for you. RetroStuff.org has just posted a detailed guide that shows you which CDIs can be region modded as well as how to RGB mod them if a mod is necessary. And you might be wondering who other than Yahel from Wrestling with Gaming might care? Well, a lot of CDI users actually, because a few of the models from PAL regions have RGB output already, so you don't really need to do any mod, you don't need to mount anything, but in order to play NTSC games in 60Hz, you would either need to do a 60Hz mod or an NTSC mod, and uh, RetroStuff shows you exactly how to do this, including using a dual-frequency oscillator so that you could truly get both full compatibility modes out of it. So uh, while I'm, I always tease the CDI, I always also recognize that they're are a few things worth checking out on it and to be honest i'm still kind of keeping my eyes open for an rgb top loader with a you know with a video chip card thing in it but it's an interesting console i do uh, i do recommend top hat gaming's video if you want both a laugh and some education on it and now if you own one and you want to do some mods to it retrostuff.org is uh provided pretty much everything that you need Chris, a.k.a. Beyond Pixels, has just reviewed the Xbox to Wii component adapter, which is simply a multi-out adapter that allows you to use Wii component cables on the Xbox. And I guess this is directly aimed at people who either already purchased really high-quality HD Retrovision Wii cables or don't have access to high-quality Xbox cables and just want to use their Wii cables. Um, Chris doesn't have any, uh, any crazy equipment for testing, no oscilloscopes, but he was completely honest about that and gave a really great real-world diagnosis of what he found. And basically, he was able to see a difference when using crappy Xbox cables versus you know real-quality Xbox cables and the HD Retrovisions through this adapter. 
and the only one that looked different was the junky Xbox cables. So uh, it's a great write-up with a pretty detailed explanation of what he did, and it seems that, at least in his testing, the real-world performance in all the resolutions the Xbox supports seems that this adapter does not affect quality at all when switching over to an a Wii component video cable. So great work, Chris, and uh, that's a pretty cool device for people that need it. GC Video has just had version 3.0 of the firmware released, and it adds some pretty interesting features. I think the most important feature, at least in my opinion, are that after updating to version 3.0, users of GC Video should be able to update it through the console. And there aren't any specifics on that yet as far as I know, but at the moment you need to take apart your GC Video device, solder a programmer to it, or, you know, get the pins in just right and hold them there, power up the GameCube, power up your flashing software, and flash it using a piece of hardware. So now after this firmware is done, you should be able to just load up something on the GameCube in order to do it. I imagine it's going to require either homebrew or booting through the action replay disc or something like that. But that's a, a pretty awesome feature. Also, it has some video fixes for anybody that could see the remaining video bugs on it, as well as some compatibility issues. So, you know, as always, it's my personal opinion that if what you have is working perfectly at, in, in its current state, I just I wouldn't mess with it. I really like the GC video devices. I think they work great. But if you are annoyed by any of the video issues, which some people can see them and some people can't. I know people tease me about this all the time, but it's kind of like a magic eye. Some people will walk right up and be like, there's a Chrome a shift error and other people could stare at it for hours and be like I don't understand what the problem is so if you see the problem definitely take the time to update and I'm really interested to seeing how any of the manufacturers or I guess even just the main GC video source is going to be updated after this one is on there but once again for the millionth time you still have to add this latest firmware with a piece of hardware it's only after that will it be able to be done on the console. But as always, thanks so much to Ingo, aka Unseen, for keeping up the work on this project. It's a very cool project that I think any GameCube fan is aware of and using at this time. Retro Fighters has just opened pre-orders on their new Dreamcast replacement controller. And this is a brand new device that's in a different shape and fixes some of the things that people had complained about with Dreamcast controllers over the years. So the cable is nice and long coming out the top, not the bottom of the controller. Supposedly they worked on getting a good D-pad because a lot of people don't like the D-pad of the Dreamcast controller. Even people who enjoy the shape of the controller always usually complain about the D-pad. And of course this one supports VMU units as well. So uh, hopefully this thing turns out to be a high quality, good replacement. I'm always hesitant to recommend controllers just because it's so often a matter of preference. So even if the controller is excellent, it really just depends on how your hands like it. And of course, muscle memory. If you've been gaming nonstop on a Dreamcast since 99, maybe a new controller might not be the best choice. I don't really know, but it looks very promising. I'm interested to try it out. And uh, if you want to grab one, just pick up the pre-order right now. Vanessa just posted a pretty cool editorial that was sparked by the support ending for Windows 7. And it's a pretty good reminder that we need to preserve not only the hardware, but the software that goes with this stuff. And these days, I feel like everybody's a little bit better about that. But there's still a lot of stuff in the past that companies have been known to just forget. So... Uh, while things like Windows 7 and Flash are ending support this year, you could still use them together on older platforms, but companies very often will do things like 
delete their FTP server because they think they don't need it anymore. And then all their drivers and backups and uh, backups of drivers and revisions are all gone. And now we lose support for certain devices because the drivers don't exist anymore. So it was a pretty cool editorial. And the Windows 7 thing, you know, I, I know so many people that have used it. It is one of the best OSs that I've ever used. I actually prefer Windows 10 in pretty much every way, but there's still a purpose for Windows 7, and especially on older devices. And I have a computer that just over 10 years ago would be considered really, really fast. Now, of course, it's just meh. But if you put Windows 10 on it, it runs fine, but it runs great on Windows 7. And it runs even better if you disable all of the stuff that you don't really need, which is harder to do in Windows 10 than in Windows 7. So I built that for a friend of mine as like a mini recording studio PC. And after, you know, it's not connected to the internet at all. So we just loaded up Windows 7, loaded up the drivers we needed, turned off all updating and everything else. And it runs really fast, like way faster than I would have expected and certainly much faster than with Windows 10. And it's something that works perfect. You know, we just do local recordings there. We got a nice DAW, so we end up with studio quality recordings. And when we're done, we just throw it on a USB stick. So it's pretty cool. You don't have to worry about, you know, I don't have to worry about updates or support for Windows 7 because we don't need them because we don't have to worry about security unless, you know, something gets on via a USB stick. But it's not, it's not something I'd worry about compared to everything else. So... It's a pretty cool editorial, definitely give it a read, and if you're still a hardcore Windows 7 fan, you don't really have to worry if you use it offline. A lot of people use it for gaming and stuff like that, so as long as you're not doing online gaming, not getting the security updates isn't really a big deal. QWERTYMOTO just posted a video showing off a proof of concept that Khan has been working on that's Super Game Boy with MSU1 audio which basically means that any original Game Boy game could potentially be patched to have CD-quality sound, just like the MSU1 audio patches for the Super Nintendo. Now, there's not too many details on this yet, and at the moment, I believe only Link's Awakening was shown, but it is shown with this uh, the newer music from the Switch version of the game, which is pretty awesome. So, you know, of course, some original Game Boy games have some really amazing chiptune soundtracks, but that doesn't mean that there isn't room for choices or for people to just make whatever music they want for it. Um, I'm not really sure how this is going to work on real hardware, but I would assume that it would require the FX Pack Pro and uh, be ROM only, just as with the regular MSU1 audio stuff for the Super Nintendo. But I'll definitely be keeping an eye on this project, and it's very, very cool stuff for Game Boy fans. I just beat, but not completed, the game Celeste for the Nintendo Switch, and it left enough of an impression on me that I took a long time to write a very detailed review for people. And I'm not going to regurgitate that here. If you'd like to know the review, just read it. If not, I'm not going to waste your time. The only thing I will say is that most of the review is completely spoiler-free and only gives away what you would experience in the first two minutes of the game anyway. Um, the second part... It kind of alludes to what's coming in the game, but I don't know if I'd go as far as to call it a spoiler. And in the end, shows <coughs> excuse me shows one of the ending scenes, and um, you know it is kind of spoilery. It doesn't give too much away. So if you do want to read the review and you don't want to be spoiled, uh, you know, stop at any part of it. Or if you're one of those people like I am with movies and you don't want to know a damn thing about it before playing it yourself, don't read the review at all. So uh, anyway, check it out if you're interested. The short short version was. It was super addicting. I really enjoyed it, but it's not something I would go back and replay as opposed to like a more 
exploration-based game like Ori and the Blind Forest. Crix has just added support for Virtua Racing to the Mega EverDrive X7, uh, the version 2. So I believe they're the ones that were always X7, not just the original Mega EverDrives. But this is just absolutely awesome. I mean, I always talk about how cool it is that Crix continues to support some of his older products, even though he's continuously putting out new ones. And this is just a really neat addition. Now, I think everybody that absolutely loves Virtua Racing probably already owns it, but that's not the point at all. Now you could just play, I think, the whole library pretty much on one cartridge without having to swap stuff around. So thanks to Crix to continuing to add really cool shit to all this stuff. And I'm going to go update mine right now and give it a try. Well, I barely coughed through it this time, so I guess I'm finally getting better, but I'm still months behind in a lot of the work that I was doing. I still have a really cool announcement that I wanted to talk about two weeks ago. Uh, I also have a few other videos that are in the works that I just couldn't get to. I was just too sick. I couldn't deal with it, but I'm getting back up, uh, back on my feet now. I'm catching up with everything, and it's going to be slow going, but I will get all of this stuff out, and hopefully you'll all enjoy it, because there's some really cool stuff coming out there recently. But anyway, as always, always thank you so much for watching listening participating if you choose to comment and of course thank you to all of the supporters because without your help this or any of the behind the scenes research could never happen thanks again and i'll see you next week